Psalm 108. Each one of these psalms has a very different personality to it, and this one is no different. It is a psalm that actually we have hit before. You'll see what I mean in just a minute. Uh, remember that the psalms is the hymn book that was used, that they sang out of, and so we could almost call this the greatest hits psalm. Uh, you know, these groups put out their greatest hits and compilations of their favorite stuff. Uh, that's sort of the way this psalm is, and hopefully you'll see that in just a minute. Let's read it, get familiar with it. Psalm 108, beginning in verse 1. Notice the inscription, it is a song, song or psalm of David, and I think that is probably correct. Uh, the inscriptions weren't divinely inspired, but um, this one certainly, as you'll see, uh, reads like a psalm of David. Psalm 108, verse 1. O God, my heart is fixed. I will sing and give praise, even with my glory. Awake, psaltery and harp, I myself will awake early. I will praise thee, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praises unto thee among the nations. For thy mercy is great above the heavens, and thy truth reaches to the clouds. We just got through singing something like that, didn't we? Be thou exalted, O God, above the heavens, and thy glory above all the earth. That thy beloved may be delivered, save with thy right hand, and answer me. God has spoken in his holiness. I will rejoice. I will divide Shechem and mete out the valley of Succoth. Gilead is mine. Manasseh is mine. Ephraim also is the strength of mine head. Judah is my lawgiver. Moab is my washpot. Over Edom will I cast out my shoe. Over Philistia will I triumph. Who will bring me into the strong city? Who will lead me into Edom? Wilt not thou, O God, who hast cast us off, and wilt not thou, O God, go forth with our hosts? Give us help from trouble, for vain is the help of man. Through God we shall do valiantly, for he it is who shall tread down our enemies. If this sounds somewhat familiar, well, I hope... It would be familiar since we just sang part of it. Uh, now you know where that came from. But there's another reason why it should seem familiar is because we have actually hit this in two other psalms. That verses 1 through 5 come from a section of Psalm 57 and verses 6 through 13 come from a section of Psalm number 60. If you would, hold your finger here at Psalm 108. Go back to Psalm 57. Take a look at Psalm 57, verses 7 through 11. And if you would, flip back and forth and compare that they are identical, for all practical purposes, identical to the first verses out of the psalm we read tonight. Okay? Then compare Psalm number 60, verse 5 through 12, with the last eight verses of the psalm we read, uh, verses 6 through 13. You'll notice that Psalm 108, 6 through 13, is virtually identical with Psalm number 60, verses 5 through 12. Now, if you 
look back, and notice that this then implies that sometimes uh, they would take sections of psalms and reshuffle them, recombine them uh, in a particular order, in a particular way to suit their purposes. And uh, what we see going on here is that both Psalm 57 and Psalm 60 begin with a mournful, plaintive cry, uh, a cry for deliverance, a cry for help, that kind of thing. And then the last half of the psalm is a song of triumph and victory. What Psalm 108 is, the psalm we have tonight, is the two victory sections. If you took the two victory sections out of Psalm 57 and 60 and put them together into a new psalm, that's what Psalm 108 is. Did I? You, you see how that works? Sort of like cut and paste with a word processor. They cut out the last, the triumphant part of chapter 57, the triumphant part of Psalm 60, recombine it in a new psalm. And uh, notice that what we're doing then is bringing together both of the triumphal sections of those psalms. And uh, you might say, well, why is that? What does that then do? I think Spurgeon had a good way of looking at this. He named this the warrior's morning song, that this would be a song that a warrior getting up in the morning, going into battle, would be likely to sing. And if I, I'm thinking about that. If I were an Israelite getting up early on the day of battle to go into war, and keep in mind, war was not something that was done at long distance like it is today, shooting, you know, few hundred meters, dropping bombs out of airplanes. War was up close and personal. Uh, it was hand-to-hand combat. It was bloody, gory stuff. And you are about to go charging in to the enemy ranks. Uh, what song, what thoughts would you like to have on your mind as you go into battle? I think those triumphant sections out of those other psalms would be exactly the kind of thing I would want to focus on as I would prepare myself for battle. Well, notice that um, in Psalm 108, as we now look into this, in the first five verses, that part out of Psalm 57, we see the psalmist's determination to praise his God. Notice the statement in verse 1, My heart is fixed. What would be the opposite of having a fixed heart? A wandering heart? What would you say? Roaming, roaming heart, unstable, fickle. The idea of a fixed heart is a heart that is determined. It is a heart that is steadfast and settled. It is a heart that is immovable, that won't be budged away from that on which it has set its affection. And so notice that it begins with this idea that the psalmist is fixing his heart on a particular object And notice he is to sing and give praise unto God, even with my glory. I think if you've got an NIV or something like that, it says in my innermost desires or something like that. Anybody have a modern translation here? In my soul? Huh? With all my being. I think that's what the NIV says, right? ESV? With my soul? Um... I I like the way the King James puts it, with my glory, in the sense that everything that I have that men might praise, uh, my talents, 
my abilities, my intelligence, you know, whatever, whatever I might have, that would be a glory to me. I will use those things to exalt and praise my God. I will give Him the glory with my glory. The things, the abilities, the talents, the gifts that God has given me that comprise that which I might glory in, I will instead exalt Him and glory in my Redeemer rather than in me, and I will use those things that others would glory in. And so with all my, it's basically saying with everything that is within me, and so with my heart, my soul, my innermost desires, all of that makes sense. That's what he's saying. And notice in verse 2, he's talking about awaking his psaltery in his heart. Now most of the time we don't say, we need to wake up that piano. Uh, I've got a guitar. It's asleep. But notice in this case, he is speaking of himself in the second part of verse 2, awaking early. And again, this is what makes you sort of think that it's someone either getting prepared for the duties of the day or perhaps a warrior about to go into battle. That he's getting up early and he is preparing himself for the battle that he's about to face. And notice that he's waking up his psaltery, that's like a guitar and a harp, in order to praise God. So there's times we need to get up early. But I would think the day I want to get up early is the day that I'm about to go in and face life or death situations. And of all days that I want to have everything prepared and I want to wake up my guitar, if I'm going to praise God, I need to get my guitar woken up as well. Limber up the strings to give glory to God. And so notice in verse 3, What is he going to do? He's going to praise God. He's going to praise Him, as we sang just a moment ago, among the peoples and sing praises to Thee among the nations. Now, we we gloss over phrases like that and really don't give it a lot of thought. Sounds good. Sounds religious. But what is he saying? When he says he wants to praise God among the peoples and give Him praise among the nations, Why would you say that? And what, what, why would that be different from what you might otherwise say? What is that saying? When we speak of the people of Israel, or the nation of Israel, we're always speaking in the singular. But notice here, he is wanting to praise God among the peoples, plural. He's going to sing praises to him among the nations. It is reminding us that God's purpose is far, far bigger than Israel. We've been dealing with that in our study of Isaiah, both on Tuesday morning and Tuesday night, that uh, God has in view uh, a bigger thing than territorial Israel. And notice the psalmist's desire is to make God's name known, not only among the people of God in Israel, but to declare it to the nations. He wants to sing this song. He's getting up early, waking up his harp and lyre to be able to sing it, And he wants to sing it loud enough that the Gentiles, the nations, hear it. The heathen know of their God. It reminds me of down in Mexico in these Indian villages that for our meetings, they always get somewhere, they come up with a PA system. And down in Mexico, it is a waste of a good PA system if you don't have that thing cranked up to the point that the people in the next village can hear you. Uh, We were down at a place called San Juan Gichicovi, a few years ago, and Brother Victor was getting death threats during our meetings. And uh, 
we finally decided that it probably was because they had the PA cranked up so loud that nobody could sleep in the entire village. In fact, Brother Victor up there was inviting everybody in the village to come down and hear the gospel being preached. And Dan leaned over to me and said, they're going to hear the gospel preached whether they come down here or not. (laughs) They're going to hear it. (laughs) They can't escape it. Well, that's what the psalmist is saying. I want to broadcast, I want to publish the glory, the greatness of my God, and I want the heathen to hear it. I want them to hear the song. And notice verse 4, For your mercy is great to the heavens, and your truth reaches to the clouds. Now, if you're in the ancient world, I mean, today we get in airplanes and we fly up above the clouds. But if you're in the ancient world, the sky, the heavens, is simply that which is above you. It's another realm that you can't reach. Uh, the clouds are up there, and they're simply doing their thing, and there's no way you can control them. There's no control you've got over it. Uh, you're just stuck down here, and that's up there. It's two different realms. And notice here that God's glory and mercy, His truth, reaches above the heavens. It's higher than us. It's, it's the universality of it. His truth reaches to the clouds. I mean, that sounds strange to say. I mean, what, what do you mean that the truth goes all the way up to the clouds? But it's simply speaking of the universal uh, dominion of the character and rule of God Almighty. And so in verse 5, the statement is, Be exalted above the heavens. In the ancient world, uh, they would usually, in Jewish terminology anyway, speak of three heavens. Uh, the first heaven was the atmosphere where the birds flew, clouds floated. The second heaven was the stars and sun, the moon, what we would call outer space. And the third heaven, that's where God is. And you remember Paul at one point, Second Corinthians, talks about being caught up to the third heaven and hearing things, unspeakable words, not lawful for men to utter. In other words, he is caught up into the heavenly realms. And of course, this is making reference to that, that this is the God who dwells in the heaven of heavens, the highest heaven. He's glory to God in the highest. He's above all the other realms. Just the first realm, where the birds fly and the clouds fly, to the ancient man was above him. But here God is being said to be even higher, higher, than that. So notice that these first five verses, uh, the psalmist is um, bearing his heart, uh, perhaps for battle, for whatever purpose, but he is waking up early, he is getting his instruments out, and he is loudly singing to the praise of the glory of God so that the heathen, the nations, might know of it. And then in verse 6 through 13, and this is the part that has been lifted out of Psalm 60 we have what I would call his determined plea, the plea of the psalmist. In other words, the first part is basically extolling the character of God. Um, There's not really one request here that he's asking for himself. It's all about God, which is not a bad way to pray, that before we get to our laundry list of what we want God to do for us, it's always best to start with who God is and our desire for God's glory to be established. Uh, our Lord taught us to pray that way. The model prayer, the Lord's Prayer, we call it, call it, begins with our Father who art in heaven. That's 
what he's doing. Let's remember, first of all, where God is. Hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Notice that before we get around to the give and forgive, we get around to the notion of who God is, where he is, our desires that his name be hallowed, his kingdom be advanced. So notice we start with that, and now we get into the plea. And, And again, I put myself sort of in the boots or sandals of a first century warrior about to go into battle, and uh, when I ask myself, well, what would I be asking for? What would I want on my mind as I head into battle that day? Notice in verse 6, this is pretty good, that thy beloved may be delivered. I need, I need saving today. I need delivering today. Save with your right hand and answer me. I need my God to come on, into my side and to be with me. And then verse 7 Here is this reminder of God's sovereignty. God has spoken in His holiness. I will rejoice. I will divide Shechem. Okay, somebody? Where's Shechem? Between the two hills. Good job, Michael. You get, as my Russian professor used to say, you get the red star today. Um, Always worried about him. <laughs> Commie in disguise. But anyway, uh, Shechem, it was between Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim, right in the heartland of Israel, up in the hill country. It is the spot that Abraham first stopped when he came into the promised land. He built an altar there. It's the first place that he offered sacrifice to God in Shechem. A uh, very, very important place. It's near where Samaria would be later on. Uh, it's a place where then when they came into the uh, Canaan after their captivity in Egypt, you remember that they were to go and stand between those two mountains and sort of re-enter into the covenant again. So it's a very important part. It's over on the west side of the Jordan River. Okay, That's the important part for our discussion tonight. It's over in the center of Israel, over on the west side of the Jordan River. So he says, I will divide Shechem... I will mete out the valley of Succoth. Succoth is, you don't pronounce the H. And uh, when I first saw this word, Succoth, I'm thinking, wait a minute, that's what the Jews celebrate in the fall, the Feast of Succoth. We call it tabernacles. But it's a word that means booths, lean-tos, little shanties. Uh, typically temporary shelters out in the field, because that's what the Feast of Succoth was all about. The Feast of Tabernacles was to build you a little lean-to out in your yard or up on your roof, and for a week all Israel moved outdoors, and they lived in these little lean-tos and shanties to remind them of when they were in the wilderness living in structures like that. They didn't have permanent shelters and permanent homes. So, it is a word. Here's the valley of Succoth. And uh, if you, again, not to take you on a rabbit trail here, but when you read of Jacob coming back into the land of Canaan, when he fled, you remember Esau was out to kill him, so he left, went up with his uncle Laban for a while, and ran, ran into a bigger crook than he was, and uh, wound up serving 20 years for his two wives and a bunch of sheep and cows. He was coming back to the brook Peniel, And there it is that he wrestled with the angel. That's over on the east side of the Jordan. If you go towards the Jordan Jordan from Peniel, you come to Succoth. 
which means booths. In other words, it's just a a little village of lean-tos. There's nothing there. The important part for our purposes tonight is that God has named a location over on the west side of the Jordan, right in the middle of the country, and now he names a location over on the east side of the Jordan, right in the middle of the country. What he's saying is that I am the one who divided the land for you. When you came in, I'm the one who gave you the land of Canaan, and then I meted it out. I divided it out to the tribes. I'm the one who gave this tribe this, and I gave this tribe this, and this, and this. I'm the one, east and west of the Jordan, who divvied out the land for you. Okay, so it's first of all speaking of his sovereignty over the nation of Israel. And this then reinforces it. Verse 8, Gilead is mine, Manasseh is mine, Ephraim is the strength of my head, Judah is my lawgiver. He names four of the twelve tribes here. And he is meeting out each one of these different areas. Gilead was, well, actually Gilead wasn't a tribe, but it was a area. Some of y'all may remember the old song, There is a Bomb in Gilead. The old folks down here in the front, they remember. Of course, I remember it too, so that puts me in the same class. But yeah, there is a bomb in Gilead. There's a question the prophets ask. Is there no bomb? Not bomb like Bomber, the mad bomber, but B-A-L-M, soothing, sad. Is there no bomb in Gilead? Gilead is the high country over on the east side of the Jordan River, just south of the Sea of Galilee. Okay, And so it was the area that when they first came into the land, they, the, these two and a half tribes spotted, and they were ranchers, and this looked like good ranch country, and they said, we want that. So he's the one who gave them Gilead. Manasseh. Remember Manasseh, you had a half-tribe of Manasseh over on the east side of the Jordan. You had another half-tribe of Manasseh over on the west side. So I'm the one who gave them that. Notice Ephraim. Now, who is Ephraim? A little biblical history here. Joseph's son. And remember that Joseph is the one who got the double portion. So his two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, each got the portion of of a tribe, even though they weren't really a tribe. You know, you understand that? Joseph, being the one who got the blessing, he gets double share, which means his two boys each get a share, just like all the rest of the tribes got a share. So Ephraim and Manasseh get Joseph's part. Ephraim is important because it is right there smack dab in the center part of Israel where Shechem is. It was the most numerous. It was the strongest economically. Most of the Jezreel Valley lay in Ephraim. So the, the, the economic part of Israel, the military part of Israel, more people. Uh, it, it had the biggest population. It had the largest army. And notice that he speaks of Ephraim as being his helmet, the strength of my head, he calls it. In other words, this is where the strength of his military is coming from. And then he mentions Judah as being his lawgiver, because Judah, of course, was way down south, but that's where Jerusalem was. That's where the kings came from Judah. And so they are the ones who are the giving of the law and the executing of the law. So notice he's just naming various localities, and the first thing that that's telling us is that God is sovereign over this land, the land of Israel. He's the one who has divided it out. He's given each tribe their portion, and he, uh, they belong to him. Okay? That should be pretty obvious. 
But then in verse 9, we jump down to Moab and Edom and Philistia. He says, Moab is my wash pot. Now, what's a wash pot? <laughs> the obvious, what you wash up in. Um, Paul, in writing to Timothy, says in a great house, there's a lot of different kinds of vessels. Vessels that are honorable and some not so honorable. And you ought to be clean and pure so you'll be an honorable vessel. Growing up uh, at my grandfolks' place on my mom's side, we in the wintertime, you didn't go outside to the outhouse. She had the pot. You use the pot. I have that today, a uh, hand-me-down. Most people get jewelry. I get the pot. But I have a lot of nice memories <laughs> about that pot. It was certainly better than going outside in the cold winter out to the outhouse. I'll clue you. You know, yeah. yeah. And so notice that I, I won't go into the details, the gory details, but Moab is sort of being identified as lower, a lower station than Israel. It has a subverb, sub, subversive, that's not it, subordinate role. Because whose job was it to do the washing of hands and feet? Women. No, servants. If there wasn't a slave around, it was the woman's job. But if there's a slave around, it's the slave's job to wash the feet of the hand of, and of the guest. That's why when Jesus and the disciples go into the upper room and he girds himself with a towel and gets down on his knees to wash their feet, they were so shocked. Because he was doing for them what they weren't about to do for one another. Because that would be to take the lowest role, you see. And so notice the symbolism here is that Moab is my pot. My, it's my wash pot. It, it's the place where my people wash up. And then notice the second thing about Edom here. It's where I cast out my shoe. To us, uh, it's funny, one of your grandkids told me tonight my shoes look funny. I thought, I thought they looked pretty nice. Anyway, he said, you need some cool... He said, you need some cool shoes like mine. He's got these glow-in-the-dark things, uh, these shiny green, what is it, green tennis shoes. Uh, yeah, I need cool shoes. We don't get <laughs> the idea of shoes uh, does not carry with it to us in our culture the same connotation it does in the East. Uh, in the Muslim world, it is an insult for you to sit like Caleb up here, cross-legged, where they can see the sole of your foot. That would be a grievous insult to a Muslim. Uh, do you remember in the book of Ruth, where when Boaz transacts business with the near kinsman, you remember they took off the shoe? We, we don't have the idea of that, that the shoe is this dirty, defiled thing. But notice in this case, God, he says, I, I take my shoes off and I throw them down there on Edom. I, I wash up over here in Moab. I take my shoes off and throw them on Edom. And then notice, over Philistia will I triumph. Now, where is Philistia? Yeah, it's about to say. If y'all were in Bible study yesterday, y'all know that. That is where the Philistines live. 
and that is what gave Palestine its name. The Romans, when they finally got fed up with Israel after the Bar Kokhba rebellion, they wanted to erase all traces of the name of Israel, so they renamed old Israel into Palestine after the Philistines. So the Palestinians, that came up, Paige, you're the one that brought up that. Um, the Palestinian, there never was a nation called Palestine. It's, it was a name the Romans gave to Israel. It's not really a country, but that's where they get their name today. But notice, over Philistia, will I triumph? And of course, we think of the perennial battles between Israel and the Palestines, and how the Palestines, the Philistines, got me saying it now, and uh, how David brought into subjection the Philistine nation to where it was no longer a threat to the nation of Israel. So, Notice, now we see that God is not only the one who divvies out and rules and controls what goes on in Israel, we have these surrounding nations. And if we think of this as a warrior psalm, then notice it seems like they're attacking Edom. Because look at verse 10. Who will bring me into the strong city? Who will lead me into Edom? Edom was about 100 miles due south of Jerusalem. If we're in Jerusalem, Edom is roughly where Grenada, Mississippi is. Okay? Not that far away. Edom, of course, was their sort of brother nation in that Edom was the nickname of Esau. So the Edomites came from Esau, descended from him, just like Israel was Jacob's other name, and the children of Israel are Jacob's descendants. The Edomites are Edom's descendants. About 100 miles south of Jerusalem. And notice he's asking the question, who will lead me or bring me into the strong city? In that area of the world, due south of Jerusalem, there is a city that was noted for its strength. In fact, in the ancient world, it was considered more or less impregnable, and it was the city of Petra. I brought a few pictures. Uh, I'm going to have Charles put them up here. I'm sure you've seen it, if nothing else, in Raiders of the Lost Ark. Uh, you've seen it. This is uh, as you're going into the pass that brings you in to Petra. Go ahead. There is the narrow canyon through the sandstone cliffs how you get into the city. And you look at that and you begin to realize how easily you could defend a pass like that. An army has to come through that to get to you. Well, it could come down the side of the cliffs, but the, the natural way would be to go this way, okay? Here's another view, and notice that you're almost to the end of those cliffs to where you can see the interior of the city, the great big temple that's there. Go ahead and show that, Charles. That is the temple that is carved right into the rock wall the cliffs. It is quite a sight. Notice those things that look like ants down there at the bottom are people. So you're way up high on the mountain looking down into this canyon where Petra was located. And you begin to see why in the ancient world this would have been considered just an un unconquerable place. And this is a place where you can hold up. And this is a place where it's easy to protect your entrances. And an army, no matter how big they are, they can't squeeze through that little hole. I don't care if you've got 
a million of them. They can only come through there about three or four at a time. So you've got a very defensible place. And this place, Petra, was just considered a place that you just couldn't conquer. But notice that the psalmist is saying to God, uh, or the question is, uh, who will bring me into this strong city? Who will lead me into Edom? Will not thou, O God, who has cast us off? Go back to our psalm a minute. The point is, is that a city that is absolutely impossible through mere human strength to conquer, that if God goes with us, it's not impossible. It's doable. And that's the sense, that's the tone of this psalm, that even a place like Petra can be conquered if our God goes with us. So notice in verse 12, give us help from trouble, for vain is the help of man. Man's help's not going to help you here. In fact, that was always the tendency in Israel to uh, get some foreign alliance with some superpower. Let's either get Egypt on our side or let's hire Assyria to come to our aid. Let's, let's try to get the strong countries to defend us. And, and the whole cry of God's prophets is, quit doing that. Look to me. I'll take care of you. And so here the warrior is crying for God to go with them and saying, uh, man's help, it doesn't really matter how big your army is or how many armies go with you. What we really need is for our God to go with us. And so verse 13, through God, we shall do valiantly, for he it is who shall tread down our enemies. In other words, what is impossible for man, I'm just thinking, how many scriptures you can think of? What is impossible for man is possible with God. Any other texts come to mind? What'd you say? Is there, anything, is there anything too hard for me, God says, or all things are possible for God? How about I can do all things through Christ which strengthens me? And notice clearly the psalmist is not asking God to go fight the battle for him, but he's asking for God to go with him into the battle. He's got to fight the battle. He's got to be victorious. But what he's recognizing is that without God, it's a hopeless cause, but with God, even a place like Petra, is conquerable, I can, he can lead me into the strong city, the strong city of Edom, if he so chooses. So you can think about trying to rally the troops, I guess we'd say, give them a gung-ho, pump them up. But notice the psalmist is being pumped up all right, but pumped up in the power and the strength of his God and not in himself. So anyway, that is a... Synopsis of this song, uh, psalm. Anybody see anything I'm leaving out or ignoring here? Any question? We got through a little early tonight, which is unusual for me. But... Had you ever thought about what you would be? Um, you know, I look at uh, some of the ancient warfare. And you keep in mind that most countries didn't have professional military. I mean, they might have a few. Like David had his Pelethites and Cherethites. They were their palace guard. But uh, when they got the army together to go fight, it was just a citizen. It's like the militia. It's a citizen army. You just get every able-bodied man. You remember when they counted the army, they just got counted every male that was over the age of 20. If you're 20 years old, you're old enough to fight. And so everybody, nobody got 
Well, some, a few of them got excused. If you, you know, planted a vineyard and you hadn't eaten of it, married your wife, you got a year off, built your house, you got to live in it for a year. But once your exemption ran out, every time you go to battle, you're expected to show. And so this is not a professional army. Uh, Conrad Merle, in fact, I recall gave, uh, talking about David and Goliath and the Philistines and the Israelites, and one on one ridge and one on the other ridge. And he said most of the time in the ancient world, their battles were more like shoving matches. And you're trying to psychologically uh, subdue the other person. And finally, one side gets so scared they break and run, and more people were killed in the pursuit than were ever killed in the battle. And I think he's probably right. That this, you know, this isn't professional military. These are just plain old folks like us. We're, we got to go out there and fight these folks that are about like us on the other side. And it, we got every kind of weapon we can think of. There's spears and rocks and anything we can make a sword out of. And it's, you're trying to intimidate the other side. You're trying to psychologically get a leg up on them. That's what Goliath was doing, coming out there and intimidating Israel day by day. So have you ever thought about that, men? What would it be like to fight in that kind of battle? You'd learn to duck? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> learn to run. <laughs> and that's why, that's, that's the problem, is that these people aren't fighters. They're not professional soldiers. They're just plain old folks like us. And most of them didn't have much armor and much protection. They're just sort of out there, sitting ducks. And... uh yeah, it, it puts a whole new slant on it when you're in hand-to-hand combat, and uh, it sort of. And the other thing is, winner take all. That uh, there's no quarter given to those that stumble and fall. That's why Paul uses that language of spiritual warfare and having done all to stand. Because if you don't stand, if you fall in battle, you're probably never going to get up. That's when they kill you. So it puts a new complexion on it. You're standing eye-to-eye, toe-to-toe with the enemy. And I'm thinking, if I'm going to head into battle, I'm going to get up early. (laughs) I'm going to seek the Lord real early. I'm going to wake the psalm and the psalter and the heart. I'm going to get, I've got to get in the right frame of mind for the battle. So that I have confidence that my God is able to use even a weakling like me to affect his purposes. Now, let's apply that same thing to the spiritual battles that we fight every day of our life. We, we don't give that much thought, but we are simply as needy or more needy to fight that battle than we ever were to fight these kind of battles. Because that battle cannot be fought in the power of the flesh at all. Our weapons are not carnal. Our enemy isn't carnal. It is a spiritual battle from first to finish. And so of all things, we need the aid of God. What the confidence is, if God doesn't go with us, we're doomed. But if God's with us, even a place like Petra will be conquered. Yeah, Charles?
Well, I find it helpful to get in the Word first thing. Now, and I, and I hate to, in some ways it's not fair for me to compare my circumstances to you because that's what I do. That's my job. And so, I, you know, it's easy for me to say that because that's, that's what, I, what I do. But there is a sense in which we need to prepare for the day in the same way that they're preparing for what's coming, in that we realize that we need help, that we're not able in ourselves to meet the foe, and we have to have God on our side. So we want to seek Him, and we want to seek Him early. I think the two times of the day, morning and evening, and of course Spurgeon had his morning and evening devotional book, uh, out of the Psalms, by the way, that uh, those two things are very, very important, that we begin the day and end the day with God. Because during the day, many of us get so busy, so focused on things, and I don't mean that we, we're not God-conscious, but we don't have the opportunity to, to focus all our attention on God. During the course of the day, most of us have a job to do. We have our secular work. We have something we're doing. At the same time, we're still meditating, perhaps, on the things of God, but, but it's not completely focused. Am I making sense? We're divided. And notice the time of day when... The heart is fixed upon God. We start out sort of recalibrating our lives, focusing ourselves on what, what we need to be thinking of this day. And I find these are the essential things. The sovereignty of God. I need to be reminded every single day that God is in control. God's calling the shots. That's what this guy's doing. Secondly, my weakness. And thirdly, his power what can be done if he's with me. And so those are, those are things to sort of every day, to start the day in that mindset. It prepares us for the battles of the day. Yeah, Ephesians chapter 6. Yeah, our battle is not flesh and blood, but principalities and powers and rulers of the darkness of this world. We're, we're fighting... I've put it this way, it's a psychological warfare. It's a battle over truth, over what's real and right, what's just and fair, what's righteous. Uh, it, it's, we, can, we can frame it in terms like a physical battle. And therefore, Paul uses the idea of armor, putting on a helmet, breastplate, sword. But... In actuality, it, it's not physical at all. Uh, our helmet is, is not something that's going to protect us, or our sword is not something that's going to draw blood. But our, to use Paul's language in another place, this is over in 2 Corinthians 10, that our weapons may not be carnal, but they are mighty through the power of God to the pulling down of strongholds. And he mentions pulling down the strongholds, casting down imaginations, everything that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, taking captive every thought to the obedience of Christ. Think about those three things. You're casting down imaginations. Everything that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. You're taking captive thoughts. Where do you have imaginations Knowledge, thoughts. 
between your ears. He's telling you where the battlefield is. That's where the battleground is. Right between your ears. And so you understand, this is a completely different kind of battle. It is fought not with bullets and knives and physical swords. It's being fought with truths. What's true? What's right? What's pure? What's holy? That's the nature of this battle. we're, We're seeing in the book of Job that this contest, which this battle, that we see Satan and God going head to head in the heavens and Job sort of the guy caught in the middle. Um, it's, it's not a normal battle at all. It's more like, as I mentioned Sunday, it's like a courtroom battle. It's like Perry Mason and Aaron Burr. It's going head to head and you're fighting. You're, you're in a contest all right, but, it's, but notice that it's being fought in, in a peculiar way. You know, I never saw an episode of Perry Mason where he got down with the defense attorney and tried to arm wrestle him. Uh, it has no, nothing to do with how powerful you are or how strong you are. It has to do with how right you are. It has to do with what's true, what's evidence. You, you understand? What's just. And that's what's being fought. And notice the contest in the heavens is all over that, that principle. What's just? I mean, Satan is slandering Job and slandering God. By saying, number one, Job will only serving you because of the goodies you're giving him, and the only way you can get people to serve you is to give them goodies. You see the charge? It's like laying a, a like a DA trying to prove his case. And so it's a battle, it's a warfare, but it's quite unlike any other warfare we'll ever fight. That makes sense? All right. Let's pray.